Before I do, why don't we go before the Lord in prayer this evening. Father, as we come before you, I pray that your word would shine forth, not my word. I pray that you would change our hearts here, that we would not come leave the same way that we came in. Father, be with me right now. Guide my thoughts. Guide my words. May they be pleasing to you. And I ask this all in your son's name. Amen. Just an encouragement before we get started into the message tonight. Underground Church is coming this week. Just want to put another plug in for that. This is a great opportunity for people to come out that wouldn't normally come into a church. Um, yes, they're coming for an underground church, but it's a great opportunity for them ultimately to hear the gospel. So that's going to be this Friday. That's going to be this Saturday. If you could be helping us promote that, push the word out to any teens you know. So if you have any teens in your family, know any teens... Or if you don't know any teens, just follow the noise and you'll find some teens. So please be helping us as we promote that for this week. So open up your Bibles. We are going to be in Isaiah chapter 29 this, this evening. Isaiah chapter 29. And just to give you a little bit of background before we start going through this. Um, this is something God laid on my heart probably two months ago. So you're thinking, oh boy, this is going to be a long sermon. I'll try to keep it short. Okay. But God laid this on my heart two months ago, and he had to work me over in my life over what I'm about to share with you tonight. And I prayed to God, God, do I need to share this with the congregation? And he kept impressing it upon my heart that, yes, yes, you need to do this. So as we go into that, just understand that, that this is something that God has been impressing upon me for several months now. So just to give you a little bit of background, Isaiah... He was a prophet during the time of four different kings. The last king he was under was Hezekiah. Um, he was a prophet to the, tribe of, or to the southern kingdom of Judah. And specifically right here in chapter 29, he's addressing Jerusalem. And you see the word Ariel right there? That is him addressing Jerusalem. So why don't we read through the verse, four verses and then we will talk about it. And it says in verse number one, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. And I will camp against thee, round about thee, and I will lay siege against thee with a mount. And I will raise forts against thee, and thou shalt be brought down, and shalt speak out of the ground, and thy speech shall be low out of the dust, and thy voice shall be as one that hath a familiar spirit." Out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. So you notice the title of tonight's message was Going Through the Motions. I think you can already kind of figure out where we're going through with this. You see, in this passage, in Isaiah chapter 29, God was talking to Israel, a nation who thought they were right with God, but they were just going through the motions. And we see that in our first point, Judah's future distress. So God starts here. And in verses 1 through 4, he's talking about Judah will be humbled. Right now, they're proud. Right now, they think they, they're doing what is right. And in their minds, they've deceived themselves and convinced themselves, but really, they're doing everything out of a sense of pride. And he gives this warning against Jerusalem specifically. Ariel, that's the line of God. It's a name applied to Jerusalem. And he uses the phrase, add year to year, let them kill sacrifices. They were just going through the motions. They were just becoming complacent in their spiritual walk. Turn with me back real quick to chapter 1, and we're going to be in verse number 11. Isaiah chapter 1, verse number 11. 
And it says this, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of burnt offerings of rams, and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks, or of lambs, or of goats. When, he, when ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand, to tread my courts? Bring no more vain or empty oblations, incense is an abomination unto me, the new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with it. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth, they are trouble unto me, I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. And you're thinking, wow, this is going to be a heavy message tonight. Okay? Don't worry. Once we get to the end, it'll be much better. But there is some heaviness we have to go through in this passage because my job is to share with you exactly is what God's word says. To add no more, to speak no less. And right here in this passage, he says the phrase, it is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. You see, all the things they were doing in worship of God, um, he says it's iniquity. And you ask, well, why, why, why is this iniquity? They're doing all these things. They're offering sacrifices. They're coming to the solemn feast. They're doing all these things before God. Why is that iniquity? You see, when we worship the Lord out of an insincere and hypocritical heart, even that worship is iniquity. It is no longer worship, but it's manipulation. You ask, well, how's that manipulation? If we're not insincere and we're hypocritical in our worship, if it's going through the motions, we're manipulating God to either get him to do things for us, maybe we're manipulating others to think well of us, or maybe we're even manipulating ourselves to make ourselves feel better. You see, in the end, we're still manipulating. It's not true worship. And we'll get to what true worship is in just a few moments. So we have the warning against Judah. We have the chastening of, of Judah. Um, it says in verse number 2 of chapter 29, so you can turn back there. It says, yet I will distress Ariel. Okay, distress means to constrain, to press, to straighten. How many of you have broken a leg bone before? <coughs> Let me see your hand. Raise it up nice and high. Okay. When you go to the doctor, I've been a part of this before because I used to work at a doctor's office. When they go to straighten a bone, they take the x-ray... They figure out where the break is, they see where it's split apart, and they determine, can they straighten it without surgery? And if they do, what they do is they have the nurse up top holding the patient, and the one down below, and I saw this just done on the toe bone, and it was, it was pretty bad. They're pulling the bone, and what are they trying to do? Straighten it, put it back into place. All right, so what do you think the patient usually does when somebody's getting their broken toe pulled with one person up here, one person down there. Oh, yeah, they're screaming. Okay, like adult men screaming their heads off. It is very painful. And this is after they've had a numbing shot. All right, let me ask this. When God straightens us, how painful is it? Yeah, painful as it needs to be good. It's as, it's as broken as we've become. It's as out of joint or out of alignment that's, that we have become. That determines how painful this is going to be. And right here we see Judah. They have gone way off the path. And God in his love has determined, I'm going to straighten them. Yes, it's going to cause pain, but true love will cause pain. You see, there shall be heaviness and sorrow. And we see God is working hard to draw them back to him, to get them to have to right heart. 
Um, and you see later on in, in the Old Testament, Judah was sieged, besieged. They were besieged in 701 BC by Sennacherib. He was king of Assyria. But it didn't just end there. We see in verses 3 and 4 that Judah is going to be humbled. And it says, I will camp against thee round about. I will lay siege thee with the mount. And I will raise forts against thee. And thou shalt be brought down and shalt speak out of the ground. And thy speech shall be low out of the dust. Thy voice shall be as one that hath a familiar spear. Out of the ground thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. Thou wilt be brought down low. Judah will be so completely broken that they will collapse to the ground before God. And they will speak, not in strength, but in weakness. They will seem like one who mutters incoherently to the spirits of the dead. It's somebody you walk by and they're on the ground and they're so completely broken you can't even understand what they're saying. It's so unintelligible. And that's how low they were brought down. That's how much God had to distress and straighten them to really get them to break before him so that they would come back to him. We see this in the, in the New Testament from Jesus in Luke chapter 18. He, he speaks of this. Two men went up to, into the temple to pray. We know the story. The one was a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Now stop and think about that. Who was the Pharisee praying to? Himself. He wasn't actually praying to God because when we actually pray to God, like when we actually understand who we're praying to, you don't talk like this Pharisee is talking. In this part, he's literally just speaking with himself. He thinks he's maybe praying to God, but he's praying to himself. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and the publican standing afar off would not even lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Two different people, one praying to himself, one truly praying to God, and you see the difference between them. One is proud, one is humble. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So Judah's future distress, we see Judah is humbled. We see the warning against Judah, the chastening of Judah, the humbling of Judah, and now we see Judah is going to be delivered. So verses 5 through 8, go there with me. It says in verse 5, Moreover, the multitude of thy strangers shall be like small dust. The multitude of the terrible ones shall be as chaff that passes away. Yea, it shall be an instant suddenly. Thou shalt be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, even all that love, or all that fight against her and her munition, and that distress her shall be as a dream of a night vision. It shall be even, it shall even, I can't speak tonight. This is going to be a long night. Give me just a moment, please. It shall even be as when a hungry man dreameth, and behold, he eateth, but he awaketh, and his soul is empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreameth, and behold, he drinketh, but he awaketh, and behold, he is faint. And his soul hath appetite, so shall the multitude of all nations be that fight against Mount Zion. God is eventually going to destroy these enemies. Now, he's using these enemies because God uses all things. He even uses evil for his own good. But God is using these enemies to bring them low so that they will realize their wickedness and they will turn back to God. We see this with 
with um, their near future enemies, with the Assyrians, we see it with the Babylonians, we see it with the Persians, the Romans, and then eventually we see it in the last times when God will eventually come back, destroy the Antichrist and all his armies, and will eventually reign again over Jerusalem. But in verses 9 through 17, we see Judah's spiritual blindness. Now, I'm not going to read through all these, but we see different phrases used to describe their condition. You see, if I come from the medical field. If we're going to, if we're going to fix somebody, we've got to determine what the condition is. Like, what are we actually fixing? And here he says the condition is they are drunken, they are staggering. That's one description. Another one in verses 9 through 12 and verse 14 is they have spiritual sleep and they are blind. And then we see in verse number um, 11 through 12 and verse 14, it says that they have a lack of understanding. These were all their conditions. It was as if they were a drunken man just staggering about, not knowing where they're going, not able to stand up straight. Remember, he said he was going to straighten them eventually. Well, right now they're not walking in a straight path. They didn't understand Things You can see in verse number 11 through 12, in the vision of all has become unto you as words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is learned, saying, read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. So you have two different people, and none of them can understand, because who is it that gives understanding? It's God. The Holy Spirit is who works in you, to bring all things to remembrance, to give you understanding of the scriptures. That's why one person can look at it and completely understand, and another person is just completely confused by it. So they were blind, they had no understanding, and they were walking about drunken and staggering. Not a happy picture. Not one that we would think, oh, that's really great. But we see here, here's the cause. And this is where we really get to the root of all this. So we see the conditions, we see the symptoms. Now we're diving deep and figuring out what's the real cause of this? Why are they acting like people who are blind? Like they're making all the wrong choices. They're doing all the wrong things. Why is this all happening? In verse 13, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by the precept of men. Wow. So they're saying all the right things. They're looking like they're worshiping God. But what did it say they've done? They have removed their heart far from him. Is this something that just happened to them? Did they just like wander off one day, not realizing it? No, it says they removed. This was a choice. This was not an accident. Um, whether they realized it or not, this was their choice. So the cause of all this is they're saying these things, but their heart's not with God. What do we call that? What word would we use for that? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. Yep, right there. They're acting like hypocrites. Matthew fifteen seven through 9, Jesus quotes the same passage, ye hypocrites. Well did Isaiah say, the prophesy of you, saying, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, but in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Right here we're talking about insincere worship. We're talking about, as Jesus calls it, hypocrisy. 
So what is worship? Worship is to describe worth. It is to revere, and ultimately, it's to ascribe worth and revere God. You see, we can worship anything. We can worship ourselves. We can worship other people. We can revere other people. But ultimately, God is calling us to worship him. Not just to go through the motions, but he not only wants our outward actions, but he truly wants the heart. You see, a right heart is going to produce right worship. So what does sincere worship look like? Because in Ezekiel 33, 31, he also condemned the insincere worship they had. He said, and they come unto me, unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. You see, with their mouth they sounded like they loved God, but their heart was seeking after their own desires. They wasn't seeking after what God actually desires. So what does sincere worship look like? What does it mean to really ascribe worth to God and to revere God? We all know this, so let's say this thing together. John 4, 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in truth. In truth. Not just spirit, not just truth, Spirit and in truth. You know what spirit's referring to in that, in that passage? It's referring to our heart. It's referring to our mind, our will, our emotions. It's all of that. God wants it all. He doesn't want just part of us. He wants our whole spirit. In that spirit, our heart, remember the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, it needs to be guided by his truth. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And worship is more than what we just do at church. We think, a lot of people think, actually culture thinks, that worshiping God, I'm just going to church and that's it. And then the rest of the week I can do whatever I want to do. But what has God said? We say it all the time at the wilds, 1 Corinthians 10.31 whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see, we're called to worship God in everything we do, to honor him, to revere him, to show his glory in absolutely everything we do. We cannot worship our way into a right heart. I'll say that again. We cannot worship our way into a right heart. A right heart guided by God's truth produces right worship. Let me explain how that looks. I know I'm not right with God. So what do I do? I go help in the nursery. I go sing in the choir. I try to go pray with my kids at bedtime. What am I doing? I'm trying to fix my heart. That's what religion is. Religion is trying to fix their own problems. But what has God called us to do? For us to have a right heart, what do we have to do? We have to humble ourselves before God. We have to confess our sin before God. That means to say the same thing as God. And it's him that works in you both to will, that's to want to do, and to do of his good pleasure. You see, we do a lot of things to try to alleviate the, the distance we feel between us and God. But really, what we need to do is to humble ourselves and come back to God, and he will begin to work in us. Now, am I saying don't serve in the nursery? Am I saying don't serve in the choir? No, that's not what I'm saying. But we should be doing it with a right heart, and a right heart will produce right worship. 
Uh, Psalm 51, 16 through 17. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite or a crushed heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Philippians 2, 13. For it is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So I know I'm going to be stepping on a little bit of toes tonight. Okay, I apologize up front. Um, God stepped on my toes a lot <laughs> over the past couple of months with this. And I'm asking the question, am I insincerely worshiping God? Am I like Israel in this passage where God says, they draw near me with their mouth, with their lips they do honor me, but they have removed their heart from me. Am I insincerely worshiping God? Let me ask you a few questions to get you thinking, because these were things I had to ask myself and realize, you know what? Not all the time am I worshiping God with a genuine heart. So here's one. Do I sing songs, specifically here in church even, without thinking about the words? How many times have you gotten through a song and you realize, I didn't even understand or think about a single word I just sung? You see, we're honoring God with our lips, but we're not honoring God with our heart. Do I pray without thinking about what I am saying or who I am saying it to? So parents... When do our kids mostly hear us as parents pray? Dinner time? And what's the other one? Bedtime. bedtime. All the time. Dinner time and bedtime. That's the primary times our kids hear us pray. How do those prayers usually go? Well, you ask your kids. Your kids probably can quote what your prayers is. My kids probably can quote what my prayers because sometimes they get so stuck in the same routine. I'm not actually thinking about what I'm praying. Well, how would that look like? Father, thank you for this day. Put a hedge of protection about us. You know how it is. When you go to pray for a meal, God, thank you for this food. Bless it to our bodies. Um, and we go on and on, and it's just the same prayer. Well, how do our kids learn to pray? They're hearing that. And then we begin to wonder, why do our kids sound like they do when they pray? Well, they're learning it from us. Um, I've had to ask myself this question sometimes and really begin to think about it because as I hear my kids pray, I hear me in them. And hearing me and my own kids is a scary thing. All right? If you're a parent, you'd know exactly what I'm talking about. Because all the ugly things that are part of your life or my life they show out, and a lot of times it's even worse than the way we show out, and it's like, ew, that doesn't look as good as I thought it did. That's, that's what we see. So when I pray, am I actually thinking about what I'm saying, and who am I talking to? Um, am I preparing my heart and the heart of my family for right worship? Okay, let me, let me stop for just a second. So before, this, before I was a pastor here, I used to work in a science lab. People used to ask me all the time, what do you do? I would get like five words into it and their eyes would just glaze over. Okay? So I tried to keep it like three or four words or less <laughs> to describe what I was doing. Um, few unfortunate souls, the first few ones I would describe probably for like 10 minutes and they're probably just thinking, will this guy ever just be quiet? Um, but when I was at this job, I did learn quite a few things. Um, before we'd ever test any products, because we used to test medical devices, before we'd do any of the testing, we had to have the right tools. 
Well, how do you know those tools work the way they're supposed to? You would do what? You would calibrate them. You would make sure that they are ready to go, that they have check, been checked against a standard to make sure that they are getting accurate measurements, to make sure they are performing the way they are supposed to. And I began to think about that. We don't run tests without making sure the instruments we're using, the tools we're using are right, that they are calibrated and ready to go, or else you cannot trust the results. You cannot trust what happens. Why is our spiritual life any different? How often do we get to the end of the day and we really haven't spent time in God's word? We haven't spent much time in prayer. You see, we wait until after we've already had the influence over our coworkers, our classmates, um, over our, our parents, our relatives, our kids, our students, and then we calibrate ourselves at the end of the day. What's wrong with that? It, as, you, as you know, that means I was walking in the flesh the whole day and I wasn't calibrated with God and his word to do things the way he has called me to do them and therefore it produces bad results. I think there's so many reasons why David so many times in scriptures talks about seeking God early in the morning. Even Jesus in his walk with God, we saw how he would get up early in the morning and go and seek God. And that's hard to do. I don't know about you, I love sleep. Like, I really do. But I need to love God more. And sometimes that means getting up in the morning and being insane. God, my body is yours to use today. That's the first act of worship. And getting up and going and spending time in his word so he can calibrate your heart and my heart so that we can do the things he's called us to do during that day. So have I lost my joy in the Lord? Here's another thing of, are we really insincerely worshiping God? Psalm 63.1, a psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Have I lost my joy in the Lord? I think we all know if we've really lost our joy in the Lord. Because we'll come in and we'll do things out of worship for God, but it's just like, God, I, I just have no passion for you. God, I have no zeal for you. And yet we see in Scripture so many times God or David, a man after God's own heart, we seal that, that zeal and passion. Remember, those that worship God must worship him in spirit and the truth, with all my heart and guided by God's truth. Here's another question. Is what I do for God really done up is it really done for him or is it done out of fear of man? I mean, we can, we can become like this sometimes. Sometimes we go to church because we don't want pastor to notice that we didn't show up for church. All right, You think it's bad for you. You just have to show up on Sunday. I have to show up all week or else I know he's going to see me. All right, So we all have that in the back of our mind. Like somebody's going to get on me. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're still coming to church. I'm glad I'm still coming to church. But really, we should be going to church and getting up because we want to. Because... I'm excited to be able to go into the, into the house of the Lord and to worship God together with fellow believers. Here's another question. Am I more concerned about following man's traditions than I am about having a right heart? You see in Isaiah passage in verse 13, and also corresponding in the Gospels, it talked about that fear of man doing things out of 
vain tradition or empty tradition? Am I just doing things out of empty tradition? Let me ask you this. Have you ever said, that's the way we've always done it? See, what's missing from that? Where's the heart behind it? If I tell my kids, well, that's the way we've always done it, are they going to walk away satisfied with that answer? Probably not. Um, what's my last name? Wyman, okay? I hear it all the time. Come on, give me your jokes. Um, and it's true, I ask a lot of questions, and you know what? I see it a lot in my kids. They want to know genuinely, why do we do things? Why do we do them the way we do? And just saying, well, that's the way we've always done it, that's not a satisfying answer. And they can kind of see the hypocrisy in that because in that essence, I'm really just going about doing empty traditions, just doing it because we've always done it that way, and my heart is not with God. Um, our church is called Berean Baptist Church, right? What, is, what, is the, what did the Bereans do? search the scriptures that should never stop we should never just do things just because that's the way we've always done it we need to be consistently searching the scriptures to make sure that we are doing it the way god has called us to do it because if we're not then we're just following traditions even traditions maybe at one point that had a good heart and motive behind it but we've lost that heart we should always be going back to the scriptures so that the scriptures, like I said, can recalibrate our hearts to make sure that we are doing what God has called us to do. So we see all these things. We see the, the, the Jews, they were insincerely worshiping God. Isaiah, you see in verse 13, says that they're doing these outward actions, but inside they remove their heart far from God. And we see in verse number... Um, Verse number 15, we see the deception. Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark, and they say, Who seeth us, and who knoweth us? Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work say of him that made it, he made me not? Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he had no understanding? We see four questions here. These are de deceiving thoughts that they had that passed through their mind that ultimately showed they weren't right with God. Who seeth us? Who knoweth us? He made me not. He had no understanding. They thought they were fooling God, but really, who were they fooling? Or who were they deceiving? Themselves. Galatians 6, 7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows that shall he also reap. You say, wow, that's a little heavy. Because if we're all honest, at some point we've walked through those doors or we've walked through the doors of our household and we gave God lip service, but our heart was removed from God. Like I said, God's been working with me through this to make sure I am living a genuine life before my family, my kids, and all those I have influence over because if my heart is not right, then I'm going to be leading other people astray. I need God's word to change me. I need him to work in me both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Without him, we can't do it. We're just going about as the Jews were at this time, staggering, drunken, wandering, without understanding, 
and feeling like things are just not really getting better and the joy is gone. And that's a miserable place to be. But that's not the end of the story, okay? So we're going to move on. Let's get to verse number 17. And we see two things listed right here. This is part of God's restoration. And we'll go through this quickly. We have his restoration of justice, and we have his restoration of spiritual sight. In verses 20 through 21, For the terrible one is brought to naught, and the scorner is consumed, and all that watch for iniquity are cut off, that make a man offender that make it a man an offender for a word, and lay a snare for him that reproveth him in the gate, and turn aside the just for a thing of naught. God will restore justice. That's what he was promising to these people. And then we see God's restoration of the spiritual sight because what was the condition? They were spiritually blind. They couldn't see. They couldn't walk in a straight path. They were staggering. And God says, I'm going to restore your spiritual sight. Thank God that he fights for us when we wander. Thank God that he has the ability to be able to do what we cannot in our own strength. And he is going to restore their spiritual sight just like he can restore our spiritual sight if we begin to wander from God. And we see this in verse number 17. It is not yet a very little while, and Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field. The fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest. And then that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of the darkness. The meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord. There's that word again, the joy in the Lord. And the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Uh, go to verse number 22. Therefore, thus saith the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not be now ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale. But when he seeth his children, the work of mine hands in the midst of them, they shall sanctify my name, to set apart God's holy name, to sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and shall fear the God of Israel. There's that word fear again, tying it back to worship. Remember, worship is to fear or revere God. Verse 24, They also that erred in spirit in their heart shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine or teaching. Isn't God's restoration great? That God can take a broken sinner like me, and fix me, to do what I could not do. See, I've been called many things in my past. You know what? They're all true. Um, Satan himself stands to accuse the brethren. He can say all that, but God has substituted his righteousness for mine. And that is our hope. Because if it depends on our righteousness, we are miserable people. But God is a good and loving God, and even in the depths of our sin, can rescue us and make us whole. Not just partial, but he can make us whole. So here's the conclusion. Here's the question. Am I going through the motions? Those things I talked about Earlier, the questions I had, am I going through the motions? Is my heart right with God? Wearsby says this, we must constantly remind ourselves that true religion comes from the heart. We believe with the heart, Romans 10, 9 through 10. We love from the heart, Matthew twenty two thirty seven. 37. We sing from the heart, Colossians three sixteen. 
We obey from the heart, Romans 6, 17. We give from the heart, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. We pray from the heart, Psalm 51, 10, and verse 17. True worship comes from the heart, and it's guided by God's truth. 1 Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but God, the Lord, looketh on the heart. Am I going through the motions? We can hide it. We can try to do things to kind of alleviate maybe the guilt that we feel, the truth that we sense. But in the end, God is not deceived. And he will continue to fight for us and do what it takes, even if it means bringing us low, so that we will turn our hearts back to him because he doesn't want just part of us. He wants all of us. Amen. He wants our whole heart. Amen. Here's the second question, and I'll close on this. If my heart is not right, how can I get right with God? Like I said, you can't just worship your way back to a right heart. I can't just do all these service things. Why do you think there's so many pastors out there that do a bunch of good things but fall away from God? 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Remember what it says, God resists the proud. He actively pushes against the one who's trying to go about thinking they can do it on their own. To be proud I've said this with the teens, but it literally means to have an overestimation of my own abilities. Even if I'm trying to do a good thing, I can be doing it in a proud way. And the proudest thing we can do is to not even acknowledge God. That's called ungodliness. To not even think about God in our thoughts, even as we're trying to do maybe quote-unquote good things. And he's calling here for them to humble themselves. Because God, he, he resists the proud, but what's the next part of it says? He gives grace to the humble. And grace is supernatural enablement. Grace is, is the ability to do what I cannot do in myself. And like I've said in the verse before, it's God that works in you both to want to do, to will, and to do of his good pleasure. Without him, I can't do it. In this last verse, Psalm 51.10 and verse 12, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right, here's the word, spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. So as we close this evening, am I going through the motions? Is my heart right with God? And if so, how can I get it right? It's not that we don't know how to get it right. It's just, are we going to actually do it? That's the question tonight. So as the pianist comes, we're not going to do a traditional invitation where you come forward, but I'm going to give you a moment. She's going to play through one stanza, and we're just going to have a quiet moment for you to be able to bow your head and to pray and to ask God. And God has said, if we genuinely seek him and ask him, God, reveal if there be any wicked way in me. He will answer 
that question. So take this moment to evaluate before God to ask him and see if you need to make things right with God so that he can restore unto you the joy of your salvation.